It's time to decide the one fantasy film to rule them all. Hello and welcome to... That's my Gandalf impression. Hello and welcome to the screen. We're going on an adventure. Is that any good? Do, do I just sound like a... Wow, Joe's not improving, impressed with that. <laughs> All right. Hello and welcome to the screen test. My name's Jack Howard and I'm joined as always by the chief film critic at The Independent, Clarice Lockery. Hello, that was my attempt to be Hermione. <laughs> One third of Hello. the cyber nerds, Joe Akinwin. Uh, what's good? And we are joined by... Well... It's the return of the king. Hey. Bam. <laughs> Bam Dalf the it's White. Bamalam. In the flesh. How are you doing, man? I'm good. How are Welcome you Welcome back. Thank you. I think you're the first returning guest. Hey, I am. And you know what? I might have lost two times already, but third time's the charm, baby. Let's go. This week, we're going to work out what the one fantasy film is to rule them all. And this is inspired by the fact that Prime Video has the whole Hobbit trilogy available to watch right now. And there is, of course, a Lord of the Rings TV series plus a Wheel of Time series coming to the platform. So what better time to decide what the best fantasy film ever made is? So Clarice, Joe and Bam, you've got to convince me why your choice of fantasy movie is the best one. Why me? Well, it's something to do with a prophecy about being the chosen one and... Saving humanity and all that sort of stuff. But I won't go into it now, it's, it's kind of boring. But just know that there is a prophecy of sorts and it picked me to pick films. <laughs> <laughs> Bam, start us off, you're the guest and you have the most obvious choice. What have you gone with and why? I'm going with Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, because I am here. The King is back. Shout out Elvis, let's go. <laughs> Why is uh, Lord of the Rings the greatest? I mean, it's been. What I mean, hasn't it been is. Said? Like, let's, you know, it is. It's not why. It, it just is. It's the greatest fantasy franchise as far as movies and books. Like, it's up there. It's up there. But I mean, this movie paved the way for so much goodness. Joe, what have you picked? The actual real start of the Harry Potter franchise, the third installment, Harry Potter, the Prisoner of Azkaban. Directed by Alfonso Cuaron. That is such a good movie. It's so good. I actually think if I'm going to have a bias, that's See? probably my favourite one that's been picked out of these three, just personally. I mean, um, it's, the, it's, it's the best of the three. So, oh, you know it, what I'm saying? It just is what so it is. So good. Clarice, what have you picked? I wanted to take, I don't know. I know this is, I the think this is a brave choice. choice. But it's a movie I think we have to mention because of how special it is and how I personally love it. A lot, and that is Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. I'm doing the. Yeah. I'm the guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great movie to talk about, and it's beautiful, and I think it's one of the best movies of the the 21st century. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. Okay, let's jump straight in. Actually, then, do we want to start with cast? Because especially Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter have been defined by who played those roles. Pan's Labyrinth. Let's start there. Let's start with Pan's Labyrinth and who like. played those. <laughs> <laughs> and because 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 I think you should talk about like for example like who played the creatures and things like that and how oh, it went yeah. on to the future of Del Toro's work. Yeah, I mean, look in terms of Ivana Banquo who played Ophelia, the main character. I mean, she's not really gone on to do a bunch. Uh, Maribel Verdu who played uh, Mercedes, the the uh, 
sort of she works at the house and helps Ophelia. She, uh, people might recognize from Itumama Tambien. She was the lady in between Diego Luna and Gail Garcia Bernal. But really, yeah, if we're going to talk about Keras, I would want to talk about Doug Jones, yep. who is just one of the legendary, like, creature actors of today. Like, if you are watching a horror movie and there is some <laughs> tall, spindly man, it's either going to be Doug Jones or it's also or it's going to be Javier Botet, who has also starred in a lot of Guillermo del Toro movies. And the thing with these two guys, like... They do get overlooked so much because we focus on on the makeup and the makeup work is spectacular on both. So Doug Jones plays both the the Ford and also the pale man, <laughs> the guy with the, the saggy skin who's so much fun and I love him. Uh, and, and and yeah, the, the 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 sort of prosthetics work on that and the effects work for for like the fawn, he was on stilts and they would just erase one part of his leg so it looked like his legs were crooked just really like genius vfx work but that takes away from the fact that these creatures would not be so spectacular and so interesting and so beloved if it weren't for the performances of doug jones who is you know it, it, acting is not just about facial expression it's not just about the voice it's about how you use your body and and doug jones has this incredible way of just like if you shift a limb this way, you shift an arm, you go a little bit crooked and you turn into something completely The way that the pale man, doesn't he run? Does he he's, run? He sort of jogs. Yeah. The way that, that, the way that he moves down that hallway, is, yeah, it, that's very... just what I'm sort of seeing in my mind's eye is this like weird nightmare image of that. Of, uh, <laughs> of him like coming towards me. Yeah. And... And if you look at what he did in sort of the other Guillermo del Toro movies, like he played Abe Sapien and Hellboy and he was some of the ghosts in Crimson Peak. Like that is range, baby. <laughs> like the I know they're all monsters, Star but Trek and and um, the fish fish dude from Shape of Water who was just meant to be like kind of hunky for a fish guy. <laughs> like there's, there are levels, there are levels to all his performances. It's like a different version of Pretty Fly for a white guy. Pretty hunky for a fish guy. <laughs> <laughs> Shape of water. Woo. All right, Pam, let's go over to the Lord of the Rings. Um, talk to me about the casting of that. What I think is so important when you talk about Lord of the Rings is it's not just, and this is, you know, you can talk about just for Return of the King, but in a general, right, this isn't a movie that has any one main character. It has a whole host of main characters. There's a reason that this movie has to have like four or five endings. It's because it's the ending of so many characters' arcs across the board and finally making sure that you understand how everyone got there, like, you know, what they were aiming for. Um, but the, the, the actors I really want to just take a second to talk about here would obviously be Ian McKellen bringing to life Gandalf in such a way that is perfect. Like from start to finish, he's such a good job in this. And in Return of the King as well, you really see Gandalf sort of stepping up to actually have to do... He's, he's always sort of on the edge, like in the other movies. Like he's there trying to make sure that the ring's destroyed and so on and so forth. But in this, he kind of has to step up and be not just Gandalf the White, but like General Gandalf, you know? He's got to take charge of all of the, the war situation and he really helps out with that. And then moving forward, you've got like Elijah Wood and Sean Astin playing Sam and Frodo, which again, like their dynamic as friends throughout this entire thing, but the way it all comes together in this movie is just, not only is it like 
a great commentary on like male masculinity and having a best friend and all of that. Like they, they convey such an array of emotions throughout this movie. And it's so important to actually carrying the movie as a whole because their journey is the core element of this. But at the same time, everyone's got their own thing going on outside and it works so perfectly. But when you have that friendship dynamic being pulled apart by Andy Serkis's portrayal of Smeagol or Gollum thrown in there as well, like those three actors in this movie works so well. One thing that you have, like if you're talking about like, say like Harry Potter, is you have a blend of there's real world meets fantasy. And so there's a, there's a level of believability that becomes easier to perform because you're in like modern world, but it also goes into this wizarding world, which isn't that much different. But Lord of the Rings is complete fantasy. Like it's, it's a world that you do not know at all. And it's brought to like, there's some ridiculous things <clears throat> I, in I this movie. I think that would make it even that easier completely in Lord of to the Rings. Like, to a degree, but it's like, it's, it's kind of easy to be like, Oh, what if I, as a regular person, suddenly found out I was a wizard and how would I react to that and put yourself in that mindset to a degree? But to just be like, I am a dude that was born as a hobbit, like, and bring that, like, to life to a, to a degree is it, to believability to the degree that you have in Lord of the Rings and the, the scale. That's without even talking about, oh, how much effects did they bring in to make this look like a real world? But the believability and, you know, reality of all these characters is so well done that at no point do you go, this is a ridiculous like situation, like at all. Like, you know, it's all perfect execution from start to finish of everybody in that movie is what I'm saying. It's not a shade on, I'm not throwing shade on Harry Potter. I'm just saying, you have to think like about- shade. No, you have to think about the level <laughs> no, I, of believability listen, I, that they're bringing into I it I agree with well. what you're saying, but I definitely think that when you're going into a universe that is a hundred percent, two thousand percent make believe it is easier to commit to that because there's 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 nothing that you've got a balance against reality. No, but you're like, battling people's expectations. No, nah, there's no that, there's no expectations. And it's, have there's a book already, so in their when, heads they've got a headcanon, and it's about how do people bring that level of believability into it as well. And people aren't turning around and being like, that wasn't my Frodo, or I didn't feel like Sam was played in the way that he should have been or anything like that. Like, so it, there is still a level of, it's not just complete made up fantasy. You're battling everybody that's ever had that book all, read to all, them or read it themselves Harry as a child as well. or going on forward. Nah. You're getting defensive for no reason here. No, but I'm just okay. trying to like, respond. You know I mean? like, I'm trying to respond. <laughs> I'm just I'm saying, trying to get some points as yeah, well. Like you, I felt like we were Try hard, try here. hard. Cause you got, you got the tough, tough battle in this right here <laughs> i was just trying to say that i think in harry potter where you've got a universe that where people actually understand and there are real things like cars and whatever you go to school in people are always going to have make it it's going to be harder to have that that suspension of disbelief when he pulls out a wand and does that and you're like raw that's not real but in a in a universe where everything's fake and fantasy it's, it's, it's easier to commit to the that rings fake like i don't i I don't know if I see that much difference because like Harry Potter is present and Lord of the Rings is past. Like I think everything in Lord of the Rings is is grounded to some element of history or, or folklore. Like there it's still tangible things of like cities and kings and ghosts and large it's not, elements. It's not the same <laughs> it's not it's not the same as going to a train station and running through mm. a but wall that takes you from yeah. King's Cross 
to Hogwarts. Like, from that's one not, station to that's another. That's not the same thing. <laughs> like, it's just not the same thing. Isn't it? It's more about aspirational fan. I think that's But as I'm saying about believability, like, I'm talking like, look, Andy Serkis's performance to bring to life a complete CGI character. Like, I'm no not. Point, I'm not. Really I'm like, not trying to. I'm not trying to poo-poo anyone's performance. <laughs> Lord of the Rings is legit. Uh, and we get it. It won lots of Oscars. We understand that. That's not the point. I'm just saying what was done in Harry Potter, especially in this movie, I think has never been done and may never be done again, where two movies have come out with child actors pretty much. And in the third installment, they get a director who everyone would believe at the time has got no, no right to be directing this movie. And we've grown with these these actors and then they transition from a child uh, like a, a kids franchise into I don't want to say young adult because it, 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 in this one movie it goes from kids to young adults to there's a maturity to adults. Increase. yeah we we mature through the whole thing in this one movie their like, performances in, increase in maturity but the filmmaking and the film in general increases in maturity everything in this goes up like 10 notches and like most franchises trying to do something like that, they fail all of the time. But Harry Potter, um, Prisoner of Azkaban, nails it, as well as getting a new Dumbledore character, yep. um, the introduction of Sirius Black into the franchise, the reveal of Peter Pettigrew, and like just that whole, the whole sequence, the way the cast come together in this, like I've never seen anything like it. And I hear what you're saying with um, Return of the King, but they, they're all adults and they've just done three, like three mega movies together. Not, not an hour and a half um, comedy flicks. Like they've been on that project for a long time. And these are kids maturing. But that's the same with Harry Potter at that point in time. They're, they're both third movies. The level, they spent a lot of time the third movie, but the level of maturity of the actors we're dealing with is not there. And we can't even, you can't even compare that. You can't compare that at all. So, that yeah. that to me that that feat that they do to me is unparalleled. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm going to give you a bonus point for that. Yeah, and then you've also got people like Alan Rickman, uh, and, and you're right, like mentioning Gary Oldman, like getting seasoned actors like that. I, I actually think that there's a comparison you can make between somebody like Gary Oldman and Ian McKellen, who get to they get given really like over the top or wild dialogue to say, but they say it with such a gravitas behind their performance that you totally believe it like you have gary oldman being like he's a rat and but it's like i totally buy that he is feeling some stuff about this gary oldman comes like come like legitly feels like someone who's been locked up in azkaban and it's like like we there's only limited knowledge of the whole azkaban i've only I'm gonna say I've only watched the movies, so I'm speaking purely from yeah. I do have from one movie, small complaint from about movie knowledge. Black. So he's he's we're just hearing about Azkaban now, and he comes out, and you just believe Azkaban is the worst place in this universe mm -hmm. off rip just off of his performance. Clarice, what were your what were you gonna say about your complaint about Sirius Black? From, oh, is it just, from the books? No, the ages don't match up. He's too old. <laughs> Right, because oh. he's meant to be the same. He was friends with James and Lily Potter. Right. But he's like significantly, they're all meant to be schoolmates. Like, so he, sorry, I said it was a small complaint. Yeah, no, I get too, it, I get it, I get he's it. He's too old for that um, No, it's just like literal canon. And then you see the, in the movie, James and Lily Potter, and it's like, why does this guy look like your uncle? I don't understand. Well, let's talk about the main three though, Joe. Let's talk about the cast of uh, 
Emma Watson and Daniel Radcliffe and Rupert Grint. Um, I feel like they're great in this movie. And like I said, um, their, their performance is just a performance that has been growing together. And I feel like they, in this movie, it's legitly like they're a superhero team that works well together, even though they're all going through their own personal little battles. Like Herm Hermione's living two lives at the same time. Harry's dealing with being excluded from everything what's going on for whatever reason. And, and Ron's just out here running around with Peter Pettigrew thinking <laughs> that everything's all right when he's, he's carrying the villain of the whole movie for the whole time. I, I, I love what the three of them do in this. And I feel like this is where, for me personally, I grew a connection to those three characters and was like, I need to see where this is going and how, like, and how this progresses. I think that every single one of these has got an incredible cast. It's, it, I don't want to forget about what Clarissa said about how, what's his name? Sorry, the man who plays Doug the creature. Jones. Doug Jones, thank creature you. Creature I don't want to underestimate um, how important his physical presence is in that movie and in all the roles that he plays. Similar, actually, to um, Andy Serkis' yeah, portrayal of Gollum. Yeah, to prosthetics what Andy Serkis is to motion capture. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just incredible. Um, I can't imagine, this is what I'm sort of going to base the points on, I can't imagine somebody else playing Gandalf and getting away with it. But I can kind of imagine them redoing Harry Potter I can kind of imagine somebody else taking on those. I mean, they already kind of have. Let's not with... downplay Frodo as well. Like his his portrayal of like almost a level of addiction, right? You know, his whole mm -hmm. battle that he's going on with the ring throughout that movie is so well executed all the way up until the end where he can't even throw the ring away and it takes Sam to have to step up yet again. Sam goes from being so optimistic to really breaking down in the middle, being like, you know what, I don't even think we're going to reach home again, to being like, no, we've come this far. Even when Frodo turns to him and says, go home, Sam, after everything they've been through, all of those beats are so perfectly executed. I'm going to give three points to Bam, obviously, in Lord of the Rings. I'm going to give two points to Joe for Harry Potter. Uh, but you got a bonus point as well. Thank yeah. you. And then I'm going to give one point to Clarice and Pan's Labyrinth. We all know that the performances aren't the... I also don't think it's important... I don't. Um, hang on. I also want to, want to say I don't think it's entirely fair for me to judge the performances in this movie because I don't understand the language. So I actually... <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I can't, I can't actually hear how, like authentic those performances are. They're just amazing, really they, authentic and amazing. <laughs> they are incredible. And the little girl, you know, is better than any of the actors in, the child actors in Harry Potter. I, yeah, that is Damn. true. She's so she good. She could easily just wipe the floor with yeah. them. And which is not a diss on, the on villain, those three. He is awful. He is, he is, mm. I hate him so much. They do such a good job of making you hate him. And that actor, I think Sergi Lopez was before then was kind of just like a melodrama guy. Like he was not known for serious performances and no one wanted Guillermo to cast him, mm -hmm. but he had faith in him and he is, yeah, terrifying, terrifying in that role. So at the end of the first round, Lord of the Rings has three points. Harry Potter has three points and Pan's Labyrinth has one point, but I will not let that remain that way it's not going to be <laughs> it's fine. lord of the rings wiping the floor it's i'm fine. not allowing that to happen that's not interesting it's not what we're here for hey look i just deserve a win at this point in time <laughs> there's no other way to put it please let's can i just have this episode all right bam let's go to you first with memorable scene 
Is or it scenes? scenes? You or can scenes. talk about many. I mean, just pick one of the 16 endings. I swear, if you don't pick the one I'm thinking of right okay, now. Okay, here we go, here we go. The <laughs> opening scene with um, Smeagol Hobbit. That was a great way to open up the movie. Like, instantly, you're like, what's going on here? You get to see a bit into his past. It's really insightful. Plus, it's very, very colourful, which is a great back ground uh, contrast into the way the, the rest of the movie goes. When Gandalf and Pippin are about to go and meet um, Denethor and Gandalf's all like, don't mention Aragorn. And he's like, well, actually, don't mention Frodo or, or his dead son. Actually, better off, don't even speak, which is just a great, like, it's a good portrayal because I love seeing um, Ian McKellen brings a sort of charm to the role, not just overall, like, serious acting and bringing it to life, but he brings the humor to life, which is really, really good as well. You've got the whole lighting of the flames where you see the flames being lit across the mountains, which is a very great visual shot, but it also stays in your mind. It's also this symbol of hope being lit up across the land as they're trying to summon all of the people to come in. And then you know what that means as well, because this is just fresh in my head, and I'm sorry about this, Joe, but Snyder tries to do a something similar to that in his cut of Justice League. And it's like, I don't know what this is. I don't, you've never mentioned this before, but in Lord of the Rings, they've established that and you, and, and you know yeah. what that means when that fire gets lit. And they like light the fires and you're like, okay, they're calling in the reinforcements. Then you've got the death of Faramir, which is really, really well done because you've got like Pippin singing. You've got the um, contrast of the dude eating the food while like Faramir, who's been basically told, I wish it was you that had died and not your brother. And he goes off into battle and dies anyway, which is just like great metaphorically, great done visually, plus Pippin singing a little song, which I really thought was adorable. I was like, damn, this guy's got a good set of lungs on him. Um, <laughs> Bam, speaking of a good set of lungs, you you can breathe. You're hey, not against the clock. Hey, we, we haven't stopped. Enjoy this. I know it's a long movie, but you can talk about we, this. We haven't stopped. We got the giant spider in the cage. We got the part where the witch king's like, there's no man that can kill me. And then Erwin's like, I am no man because she's a woman and stabs him and he dies. <laughs> she uh, Feminism. Oh, it's the flipping of the helmet off. Yeah. She's, oh, and then she goes, ah, with both hands. And he with like, a little broken his shoulder. helmet crushes in on him and everything. And it's just a great so visual right. yet again. Um, you've got the whole battle, which what, really works about this movie is like throughout uh, the most of Lord of the Rings right they've got this excellent sort of like total war simulator like level of battles that looks great and still looks great today I mean they but did change the way that that sort of uh, scale of cinema was, was, was shot and choreographed and it changed things. Yeah, 100%. And what you see with this one is they actually have the balls to go and do it in daytime. A lot of the time when you see CGI effects in general, especially mass effects or even smaller effects, they like to use dark lighting because it's a lot easier to bring that believability in it by um, bringing down the lights and such. You see it in loads of horror movies, so on and so forth. But what's really good about the battles in this is a lot of them are actually at daytime, so you're still seeing all of these incredible effects but you're not seeing them hidden at all and they still look just as good Orlando so then Bloom you have the battle down you've got the trunk. big swooping panning <laughs> shots you've got the giant elephant that Legolas is like I think I could probably take down one of these on my own I think I and can he does <laughs> like, <laughs> and then Gilly's yeah. like that only counts as one yeah exactly you've got um, when you're Jim, just describing the whole film no I can't believe you've these, not said the best what's your these favorite memorable scenes. scenes I still got some these are all great still scenes still come on uh, is him. he still? Is he chronologically getting to it, or has he passed it? No, he's he's not at it yet. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost there. I know what you want to hear. You got Gimli that says, "Who'd have thought I'd be dying next to an elf?" As he looks at Legolas and says, "Well, what about dying next to a friend?" Friendship oh, win right I'm there. I'm getting goosebumps I, just I like hearing you that. say that. Like, you know what I mean? Maybe the real Lord of the Rings was the friends we made along the way. I think and then, it probably was. Um, and I'm going to give you a bonus point for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> then you got Aragorn, who's like, you know. They don't even know if Frodo's dead or not, yeah? 
But he says, as he's about to ride into what looks like imminent death anyway, a giant army that's probably going to wipe him out anyway. But he just looks back at Gandalf and he's like, for Frodo. That's it. Which and when he on... says, there may come a day where the courage of men fail, but it is not this day. That that's what I'm saying, man. It's like, just the most. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. The most about. beautiful, like, epic filmmaking. And I, I have a confession to make, and I feel like now is the oh. time to do it. I've only seen the Lord of the Rings movies one time. Because I, when they came out, when I was a kid, I didn't get it. And I've always kind of struggled with fantasy stuff. I actually retroactively went to go back to Lord of the Rings because Game of Thrones yep. got me into that style of, of, of you know, world building. Yep. And I've watched them once. And I've, I've got to say that all the stuff that you're mentioning is burned into my brain after one viewing of, of these films. This is what I'm saying. And then you've got, obviously, Sam carrying Frodo up to destroy the ring. You've got the entire sequence, which stays in your head as well. The flamey backdrop. Smeagol trying to get his hands on the ring one last time. When Frodo puts the ring on and turns invisible, just out of there. And then Smeagol, as he's falling and gets his hands on the ring finally, and even as he's dying, he's trying to hold that ring up because that's more precious to him than his own life. And he's just burning out there and then you know you've got um i'm gonna, I'm gonna let you have one more one more don't worry i got one more it's the perfect one God. when when the hobbits go to bow and aragon's like you bow to no man and then everybody in that entire oh. area just bows to them my friend sammy when i watched it with him i've i've never seen him cry like this. And I, I didn't even have to see him, I heard him. I heard this like, <laughs> like noise just next to me. I, I got emotional, but not quite that emotional. That scene makes people very emotional. Because it's delivered so well. It's, it's, it just basically represents the entire journey, like the smallest, weakest, foolish, most like whatever breed you want to call them in the attire of all of Middle Earth were the heroes of this story. And they finally get their recognition and they're finally back together, all four of them standing in this new world as well. It's like elves and dwarves and, and man and everyone there who've all come together because of this story, all just going, you know what? Hats off to you. You guys, you, you did it. You might be small in stature, but you were giant amongst us. Like, you wow. know, it's, it's great. Okay, that is an abridged version there of The go. Return of the King. Thank you for that, Bam. <laughs> There's clearly a lot to remember in there. Joe, We're what are some of your favourite moments in The Prisoner of Azkaban? Are we really... I'm not, I don't know if we can... <laughs> Who's going after that? <laughs> you are, Joe. <laughs> I, I don't know. I've got Patronus. Yeah, no? man. Uh, Patronus, I mean, anyone? I mean, no? uh, this film is absolutely up my fucking alley because there's time travel in it <laughs> and it's my favorite my... type of time travel <laughs> yeah. murdered it. my, my favorite it. scene in that movie is when hermione punches draco in the oh, face oh what a punch it is <laughs> that is an incredible punch and she goes straight for it and and we get to see it twice don't we uh, yes we do from two different angles yeah, i mean I the, replay there's a couple moments in this movie that i really love i think one of them that stands out to me is the one where they're all in the Defense of the Dark Arts class and um, the shot comes in where it lo it's looking at the class through the, the wardrobe mirror and it goes into oh, the mirror yeah. and it comes out the other side and we're, we're in the class. And I, I love that because I just feel like it's a sick shot. Um, well, that's it, Quaron is, is a master of, of photography. Yeah, I, I think mean, he even used, like he kind of practiced his single take shot stuff on this before doing Children of Men. Yeah. He was like, I'm just going to use this as a playground. <laughs> yeah, and there's so much of that. And I feel like 
that type of filmmaking and what he does really brings Hogwarts to life in a way we've never seen in it. Like anytime we go anywhere in Hogwarts, it's like we're actually walking there, we're actually traveling there. And it kind of ends up laying out the whole geography of what leads to what in Hogwarts. And, and that plays out later in the movie when we're time traveling and we're seeing them go, but we're really behind them. Like we know exactly where they're heading to. And I feel like that's sick. Yeah, um, that is, that's an underappreciated thing. Cause I, if I'm thinking about the layout of Hogwarts, that's the one I think of. I think about the prison of Azkaban, like where Hogwarts, where Hogwarts is in relation to like Hagrid's hut in relation to the forest. And, and I kind of can see that in my head based on the way that Quaron designed it. And, and what's even mad about that is um, they said that in that movie, they had to ch not change it, but they had to like certify where things were because of the way he was recording it. Whereas yeah. I think in the previous movie, Hagrid's, Hut was actually somewhere else. Yeah. But now they had to make sure it was here all of the time. And I felt like that was great. There's the scene um, in the Great Hall where Dumbledore's doing a speech and the, it's just like one continuous shot where it comes in through the door, it runs through the tables, it goes around, it hits the choir. We see everyone singing, all of that. I feel like that's the kind of stuff that really helps this transition of where we was in Harry Potter to the new place we're going. Yeah, I and, love that. and also the transformation of the werewolf as well, like actually scary and freaky. Yeah, and I, was, I was definitely getting to that because I feel like I loved seeing that and I feel like that was also like mirroring the transformation that Harry Potter was going through from going from kid, a kiddie movie mm -hmm. to uh, this is for everyone now, this is for adults, we can get into this. And they really go into that transformation. He does the thing again, where he goes into the eye of, um, I can't remember the character's name. He goes into the- Lupin. Yeah, Professor Lupin's yeah. eye. <laughs> It goes in as Lupin and he comes out and it's transformed as a werewolf. And I just feel like stuff like that, I never at that time expected to see in Harry Potter. And then he brought it to life in such a way. So I feel like those scenes, the filmmaking, the directing mm -hmm. on that stuff is, is top tier. <laughs> a th thing that just came into my head is Emma Thompson's incredible performance. My boy, you have the grin. <laughs> She's doing such hammy acting, but makes it feel so real. Um, yeah, I, I adore Prisoner of Azkaban. If I'm going to watch a Harry Potter movie, that's the one that I yeah. always go, oh, I haven't seen that one in a while, but it's the one I always put on. And it probably is because it's time travel, but it's my favorite yeah. type of time travel where there's only one timeline mm. and everything happened that way the first time and it's just about fitting it back in again. And I think it does it beautifully, but also choreographs it beautifully. Like the logic makes sense, but also the way that it's the perspective it gives you each time. Yeah. Like I, I really believe that when you watch it for the first time, you're gonna think that the hippogriff, what's his name? Buckbeak. Buck you know that he's good. You think that he's dead. Mm. You think that it's gonna be somebody else who's casting the spell. You don't see the time travel stuff coming. And then that moment when Harry realizes it's not his father, but it's him. him. That is like, oh, it's so good. It's the so Jonas. good. Yeah. And I love my, I, I think another one of my favorite bits is the fact that it feels like it's it's all been thought out before because you get to the very end when they see Dumbledore and they're all like, thanks for helping us, Dumbledore. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> With that closes little, the door. <laughs> just that little like wink. And it's it's so clever because it, it, it makes the whole storyline feel like it's just a perfect little plan that Dumbledore had. Mm -hmm. And it gives them this extra, like that is magic. Like yes. that is pure magic is everything just working out 
nicely because Dumbledore like made a suggestion. I think it's got a similar feeling. This is a wild comparison, but in terms of the experience I remember having, because I remember seeing that film when I was a kid. I don't remember how old I was when it came out, but coming out and being just excited about cinema, like just being like, that's why I love films. And I had the exact same experience when I watched Arrival because there's that reveal in the film when you, you find out, oh, you've been hiding from me that this is about time this entire, that my, my um, assumptions have been completely subverted because of how well you've laid out this movie. And Quaron, I think, is the one to thank for that. Clarice. Let's talk about Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's the best scene. I love it because of just how creepy it is. But I, I guess for the podcast if, listeners, we're talking about uh, we're doing the pale, the, man. the pale man. Hands, hands, hands in on, the eyes, <laughs> eyes on the hands, hands on the face. I don't know if it'd be more interesting to talk about less about particular scenes, but about like the thematic line of Pan's Labyrinth because really it is about there's kind of a triangle of things going on where you have Ophelia's, the, the fantasy and the nature and, and the fawn. You have the, the Franco's fascist Spain and you have the brutal, brutal violence of that. Uh, I think one scene that really, really always stands out to me is when he beats the guy with the bottle mm-hmm. and he smashes the guy's face. And, and the story of that is that Guillermo del Toro, when he was a child, was in a street fight and actually saw his friend get beaten with a bottle. And the thing that he always remembered is that the bottle didn't break. <sighs> and like, and so to translate that into into this scene of like absolute horror, but it, it's such a Guillermo del Toro is so good with violence. I know that sounds really weird, but he's so good at creating this balance between you know that scene is sort of phantom. It's like. It's so over the top, violent and gory, but there is a, there is something grounded to it. And so you feel kind of torn between between something that is so awful that it can't, feels like it can't exist on this planet, and also the idea of oh well, this is real though, like this is a real part of the the texture of, of fascist Spain. And so you have like you have that, you have the fantasy, and then you also have the the rebel side, the resistance fighters, and what I've always really liked about Pan's Labyrinth is the way that Ophelia and Mercedes's um, storylines kind of run parallel to each other because the assumption people always want to make is that, well, Ophelia's just imagining everything. It's not actually happening. It's just all her sort of... Way of processing. ...desire to escape from mm-hmm. the trauma. And Guillermo del Toro said, hey, look, everyone's got their own interpretation and I support that, but hey, it's real. <laughs> Right, it's okay. real because of certain elements like um, like there's a point where she gets to the dead end in the labyrinth and it opens up and she managed to escape that couldn't be possible in real life. Uh, there's a flower that blooms at the end magically. Do you subscribe to that then? Because I, I don't often care whether or not the author of something has decided to say what it is. If somebody has a different interpretation of it, of the art, I always, I'm, I'm fine with that. I never think that just because the person who yeah. made it says that it is something doesn't mean that it has to be that way. Exactly. And, and I think it is completely open to interpretation. I tend to lean towards the it's real narrative because I really, I like that parallel thing of, of these two women who are finding different forms of rebellion 
and and for Ophelia as the child, the innocence is the rebellion because obviously the fantasy world, the fairies, everything about that, it's childlike, it's innocent, and that's how she she fights back against this very rigorous masculine adult world around her. And then you have Mercedes, who it's her character so great because she's kind of, she's working for the the fascist general cap, captain. Um, and she she tells her brother at one point, God, I feel like a coward. I feel like a coward because I'm serving this guy food every day and doing his laundry. But she finds these very small but significant acts of rebellion to do throughout the story. And so I don't. I just always see those two characters being twinned. And do you think that that changes how you view the very end scene of the film? Because there's something very very bittersweet about it. When because I tend mm. to interpret it as a fantasy and it's like a sad reveal that it was all this dreamlike thing do you do you find it ha creates a happier ending or less of a bittersweet ending that she actually makes it to this this the land where she gets crowned a princess yeah i it, it that's is what happens isn't it? she gets crowned princess. she gets yeah. crowned a princess but i think you also have to look at what's happening in the real world yep. is that they burn down the the they win the rebels win and they manage to confront the captain at the end and rescue the the son as well, the baby boy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think I think it is a happy ending. I think even I don't know. Because because it it's a victorious ending mm -hmm. and there's hope at the end. And I think that's the most important part of the movie. You know, her her death is almost kind of a secondary. I know that sounds horrible to say, but it feels almost like a secondary thing to the moral victory that everyone achieves at the end of this movie. And that's really what Guillermo del Toro wanted to spread is this message of like, yeah, love, love conquers all and, and goodness can succeed even if there is sacrifice. I'm going to give a bonus point for love conquers all, but I'm going to give... Also, I'm going to give uh, Pan's Labyrinth the single point, but you get two That's points fine. for that. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, and then it's going to go top points, obviously, to Lord of the Rings, because you basically recited the whole movie, and I was like, yep, yep, But they're yep, all memorable yep, yep. scenes. So. Uh, they are, yeah. And you also got the bonus point for the friends we make along the way. <laughs> uh, and Joe, you get two points um, for The Prisoner of Azkaban. It is one of my favorite childhood films so i i i recognize it the way that bam told the story of lord of the rings that's what prisoner of azkaban is for me it's all memorable and maybe the first film i saw that dealt with time travel i, didn't, I think i saw it before i saw back to the future i think it maybe awoken something in me that you know led to me <laughs> who doesn't loving tenet yeah I, was about to say. <laughs> I can't get through anything without mentioning that i like tenet <laughs> <laughs> so right now Pan's Labyrinth is unfortunately on three points. The Prisoner of Azkaban is on five points. And at the top, Return of the King is on seven points, which leads us to the third round, which is Cultural Impact. Clarice, I would like to start with you because Gamal Del Toro not only influenced your movie, but also the two other films he had something to do yeah, with them as well. Like he's the he's the granddaddy of fantasy, Guillermo <laughs> del Toro, because he has been asked to do every single fantasy franchise. He was asked to do The Hobbit, and he was gonna do it, and then it didn't work out. He was asked to do Chronicles of Narnia, and he said, nah, I want to do Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> and he was asked to do Prisoner of Azkaban, and I, I can't remember why he gave something happened, and he didn't do it. And 
Alfonso Cuaron was then offered it and Alfonso was going to say, this is stupid. It's a kid's book. I'm not going to do Harry Potter. And Guillermo del Toro. the art director. (laughs) Cornered him. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, you, and he kept calling him flaco, which is skinny. Like, you skinny, arrogant bastard. (laughs) You are going to go to a bookshop right now. You're going to buy the Harry Potter books. You are going to read every single one and then you're going to do Prisoner of Azkaban. And thank God for Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, so really Prisoner of Azkaban would not exist without Guillermo del Toro. There's some cordial impact. So that's a fun fact. I'm going to give you a bonus point for Guillermo del Toro's influence on all of fantasy. He's (laughs) just everywhere all the time and then he keeps not making these movies and going off to make a robot or a a lady having sex with a fish movie. Yeah, yeah, he's got a range. That's why we love him. What about Pan's Labyrinth in general? Do you think it's had a cultural impact on the rest of cinema in any way? Or do you think that's a quieter uh, impact that it's had? I mean, definitely not compared to Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. What do you mean? Like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I think if we can talk about cultural impact, it, it came at a really interesting time when I think Hollywood was starting to pay more attention to international cinema really in terms of like I think it's coming around it kind of came around at the same time as like Crouching Tiger and Hidden Dragon the sort of early 2000s recognition it was definitely the first film I remember my friends telling me that you had to watch it with subtitles and I was like (laughs) yeah I feel like it was for a a lot of people our age it was the first Mm -hmm. one of the first movies uh in a foreign language that a lot of people watched and and I think it sort of it popularized international cinema as being something more than like <laughs> sad French people <laughs> in people being sad and, and French and it's in black and white. I think in, in kind of like the popular imagination, um, seeing something like Pan's Labyrinth made people go, oh, yeah, like I don't I don't need to be scared of subtitles because there are cool movies yes. that are in different. Like, that's what Bong Joon-ho says. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What a great Oscar speech. One of the many Oscar speeches that he gave. Joe, what do you think the cultural impact of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban is or Harry Potter in general? Much like you said, Jack, um, I'm not hugely into this type of magic fantasy, but Harry Potter opened a door to me to be into stuff like WandaVision now, um, and just any kind of show with magic, do you know what I'm saying? So I feel like it's definitely did transform a whole generation of people. But moving forward, it's 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 a sticky situation for uh, the wizarding world. Yeah. Do you think they'll ever? Do you think they'll ever remake it, or do a sequel in some way with like an adult version of Daniel Radcliffe playing Harry? I mean, feels like it's a fashionable thing to do now. Well, I feel like because it's a WB product, maybe. But they definitely shouldn't. Mm-hmm. They should just leave it where it's at. Maybe finish it. I'll be happy for them to finish the Fantastic Beast, and I'm hoping that the third Fantastic Beast movie takes the same change that the third Harry Potter movie does. I know it would be hard to do, and the circumstances are different, but that's really what I want to see because I just don't. I don't really like the first two Fantastic Beast movies. So uh, the first one crossed. I thought was a struggle. And the second one I thought was actually one of the worst things I've seen in a long time. They just time. sucked the life out of the Harry Potter franchise. In terms franchise. of the it way that the script really is written, fun, but it's like, not. Forget about JK's views for a second, even though we shouldn't. Her talent as a screenwriter is poor. It's so bad. The structure is terrible. And that's why you can't 
always just do books and screenwriting. There is a scene in the second one where they're they're explaining, they're in that crypt and there's a lot of exposition going on and everyone's yelling. And there's a line from Zoe Kravitz where she says something like, I don't know. (laughs) And it's the most sincere line reading I've ever heard in the Harry Potter universe. I've heard just being like... I don't know. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> it's all the flashbacks Everyone, within up, flashbacks please. within a story, you know, and this person has a secret brother and it's like, what the hell are you doing to your own work? Like, why did you build this up just to destroy it? Yeah, I think it, I just some of the cultural impacts are weird because I feel like the readers of Harry Potter really ended up influencing like the structure of like where it rent with the whole Hermione and Ron getting together, um, announcing... Uh, Dumbledore's gay because yeah. of the external pressure and all of that kind of stuff. I felt like that was really that was really interesting, but I just think that is kind of how WB as a organization are like they're very react- reactionary to what is going on in the moment, and I feel like that's always going to be a failing of them when it comes to the their franchises that are like longer and extend into. Something more. Bam. Can I? I was, add, oh no, please, Clarice. I just wanted to add one small thing. Percy Jackson. I like the Percy Jackson movie, and that was because because there was a lot of like the whole young adult thing. Yeah, they, well, that's the thing. Yeah, is Harry Potter, like Harry Potter, Percy Jackson, Hunger Games, Twilight, Hunger like Games. all of that stuff happened because of Harry Potter. And you know what? I like Percy Maze Jackson. Runner. I'm not afraid to say it. I kind of hate all of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, except Hunger Games. Hunger I Games. Think, Hunger Games I'll be like, yeah, I like Hunger Games. I think that's all right. But the rest of those stuff, I just didn't think, I just didn't think it was good. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I Prisoner of Azkaban is like, if you line it up against all of them, it's so much better. So I'm not even trying to claim that as culture. No. I was yeah. going to throw in the um, Cursed Child is like fairly successful theatre um, continuation. Yeah, of fan so, fiction. So it's, you know, it's gone out into other aspects of um, just general you know, popular demand. And that's like really successful. We may even see that adapted at some point mm-hmm. in time. It's a very, um, very interesting thing to watch because it, it does just feel like somebody is doing fan fiction of, of the world. But it, it's such a interesting thing to just go into and be like, oh, I don't know how I view this or where it fits in my idea of what Harry Potter is. It feels like a separate thing. And it, again, you know, I don't want to give spoilers for people who haven't been able to see The Cursed Child, but the way that it messes with time it tries to do something similar to Prisoner of Azkaban, but I think it just becomes a trip through greatest hits. And it's, I don't know, I just, I didn't particularly like it. I think yeah, that well, Harry tried, Potter should stay where it was. <laughs> we'll leave it there. Right, Bam? Um, so one thing I just want to put across for both, uh, you know, this, I'm being positive. I didn't just come here to tear down everything. The success of Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter as movies has meant that we've seen Elijah Wood and Daniel Radcliffe use that money to go out and make crazy, wild, like pay, take on projects that they want to do, not for a paycheck because they're sorted for life, but they can do whatever they want. And I think that's a very, very good merit to both of the franchises. Not that they you need it, ma'am. 
bonus point for that. That is great. You know what I mean? Like, you wouldn't have, like, I don't know if anyone's seen Miracle Workers, but it's one of, like, the first season of Miracle Workers is so hilarious where it's just Daniel Radcliffe playing an angel with Steve Buscemi as God, and he has to try and make people's miracles happen, and he just can't because he works in an office that's, like, got 70s computers and such, and he can't do anything to actually direct influence people. Like, projects like that would never have happened if he didn't get such success at this point in time. What's the one where he plays a corpse? Swiss, Swiss Army, Army Man. Man. Yeah. And the fart acting is yeah. spectacular. Like, so, you know, it's it's had a great knock-on for certain actors' careers. Um, you know, again, Pirates of the Caribbean, Orlando Bloom being seen in as a sort of, like, hunky Legolas moved on to being in Pirates of the Caribbean. There's been a lot of general positivity pushing forward for actors in it. But overall, what I think, as far as, like, a cultural thing goes for Lord of the Rings, um, in cinema... Uh, I think in the same way that you sort of said, like, you know, Harry Potter got you into the sort of magical, like, element again, um, Joe. But what I think Lord of the Rings done is it really reinvigorated this sort of genre that is like, you know, this it's a tale as old as time, the sort of elves and um, dwarves and all of that. Like, they've always been around in history and stuff, but it really pushed it back to the forefront. I don't think you'd have things like games, Game of Thrones being adapted later down the line if you didn't have such a massive success with Lord of the Rings at its point in time. And then, you know, that knock-on effect, and similar for Harry Potter as well, but, like, the amount of games you got from it, the amount of, like, do you think how much people probably got back into like Dungeons and Dragons after watching Lord of the Rings again like things like that it has such a good knock on for the fantasy genre as a whole and it opened up the door for people to be like you know what fantasy's pretty cool actually like when it's done with a sort of nice like really like heroic approach to it and a great cinematic like e even further like you go into what sort of like it's done for movie making on a whole like they really took things that have been like used but not optimized like using miniatures to create these battle scenes the simulator that they built up to create these massive um fight scenes that i'm sure they sold onwards moving forward but they created that engine for the sake of the movie and that's like so you can simulate entire battlefields and then they impose that onto miniature sets which they can explode and all of that goodness motion capture like really showed us with um andy circus's performance like in that and the believability with that as well really pushed motion capture forward so far the time that they put into this the effort that they put into making this movie really just showed everyone what you can do when you're serious about a project and you've got the right type of backing to do it and you take the time to do it and i think it's just had such a great knock-on effect for you know arguably I wanted to say a movie like Endgame for this would be considered fantasy because you mentioned with like Harry Potter how like they're kind of like these superheroes or whatever. It's it's the same type of genre really. Like the only reason comic book movies are called comic book movies is because they come from comic books, but ultimately they are fantasy. Like these, mm -hmm. it's just a big take on fantasy, and so it really does have this effect. Again, like talking about big battle simulators, you wouldn't have Infinity War type shots if you didn't have something like Lord of the Rings Helm's pushing deep. it forward, you know? Um, so it had a massive, as far as culture goes, I'd say Harry Potter had the biggest effect on like pop culture as far as fandom goes, but in the cinematic world, Lord of the Rings pushed things forward by, you know, years to come. And they broke some boundaries and really executed it. You can watch it today and it still looks as good. Yeah. Everything holds mm. up. Okay, so the points of that round, I'm going to give uh, top marks to The Return of the King. So that means you got 11 points with the bonus point as well um, for saying that the Harry Potter actors and the Lord of the Rings actors can now go and do an in interesting projects because of its existence. Not only did Lord of the Rings obviously influence things by being 
Lord of the Rings, but also the actors in it were able to go and do what they want. And you've got 11 points now, which is the same amount of Oscars that The Return of the King got. Hey, it was meant to be. <laughs> and then I'm going to give two points to Harry Potter because you can't deny the influence that it had on cinema. Uh, and then one point to Pan's Labyrinth, but you've got a bonus point for saying that Guillermo del Toro influenced basically the fantasy genre mm. and has been he asked to do everything. bullied Prisoner of Azkaban into existence. That's great. So at the moment, 11 points for Return of the King, five points for Pan's Labyrinth, and seven points for The Prisoner of Azkaban. Okay, so now we're into the final round, which is the IMDb round. So what order do you think the films are gonna end up in? What's top, what's bottom? I am gonna say be controversial. <laughs> And I'm going to say Return of the King, then Pan's Labyrinth, then Prisoner of Azkaban. Okay. Anybody I disagree. Agree. You agree? Yeah. Bam, what do you think? I feel like Prisoner of Azkaban stands out for a lot of fans and uh, of the franchise. So I'm going to put that second. But other than that, I'm going to keep the order. All right, uh, let's find out. Alexa... What's the IMDb rating for Lord of the Rings Return of the King? Return of the King has an IMDb rating of 8.9 out of 10. 8.9. I was expecting it to have a 9. Yeah. It's still going to be tough to beat. It's very high. <laughs> yeah, it's quite high. Alexa, tell me the IMDb rating for Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth has an IMDb rating of 8.2 out of 10. Not too shabby. 8.2. Can Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban go higher than an 8.2? Do you believe that it can? I think it, it I'm, I'm hoping for an 8.3. Okay, here we go. Alexa, tell me the IMDb rating for Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. The Prisoner of Azkaban has an IMDb rating of 7.9 out of 10. <laughs> really? Close, close, which means that Lord of the Rings is at the top with 8.9, Pan's Labyrinth with 8.2, and Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban with 7.9, which means that the end points are as follows. Return of the King has 14 points. That's the highest I think that anything has scored on this show. Don't quote me on that, but it seems pretty friggin' high. And then uh, Prisoner of Azkaban with eight points and Pan's Labyrinth with seven points. We knew it was gonna end up this way, but wow, it steamrolled everything. Hey. Bam. Looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. <laughs> how do they know what meat is? How do they know what, how do they know what a menu is? I don't, it doesn't matter. It was a good soundbite. <laughs> hey, Pause. they have orc restaurants in the Tower of Sauron, probably. So, Bam. Wait, yeah. hang on. You're too keen. I've won it now. All right, fine. Take it. You Come can on. have the screen test award. Look at that. <laughs> I've returned redemption. Return I lost two times for this, but the I said the third time's the charm. They don't make these sayings up out of nothing, you know? There it is. Oh, I smashed the mic. But you know what? <laughs> I, I'm over the moon. And I, I, I'll be honest, Jack. Go on. You didn't even come in here with a biased agenda against me, so I commend you on this round. I don't know what you think this is. I don't have like, a biased agenda against you. You definitely did in the past two. No, you just you just had a, a bad hand. You were, hey, you look, were... I'm the champ now, so if I said that you had an agenda against me, then <laughs> that's enough. what it is for today, because today is Bam's day. He has won the screen test. I believe, did my friend Paul, he won his episode, didn't he? He did, yeah. Oh, yeah you better get us head-to-head, because -head, I'll fight him in the studio for the championship. <laughs> Physically? I'm calling it out now. Heavy spoilers. He'll lose. See you when I see you, man.
I'm coming. Well, I'm coming for you. Well, thank you very much for joining us on this week's episode of the Screen Test. Bam, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on winning and congratulations, yes. obviously, to the Lord of the Rings yeah. for being crowned the greatest yes. fantasy movie of all time. We knew it was going to happen, but it's fun to discuss this stuff anyway. And don't forget, you can watch the full Hobbit trilogy right now on Prime Video. And come back next time when we'll be deciding what is the best action movie ever made. Bye-bye. The people's champ once again. Just say bye, Bam. Sorry. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>